What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. we're going to start looking at one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, which is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 has some of the most important and also uh, encouraging truths in the entire Bible to share with us. And in order to fully understand what Romans chapter 8 reveals, we have to keep in context Romans chapter 6 and 7, as we note from our outline. All three of these chapters are dealing with a really important truth in Scripture, which is sanctification. Sanctification is being set apart from sin to be set apart to God. It's ultimately the process in which God takes us and makes us more like Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 6, Paul explained to us why sanctification is possible for us, why we can be set apart to God, why we can become more like Jesus, why it's even something feasible in our life. And the reason is, is because when we accept Jesus Christ, our relationship to sin changes. Before we accepted Jesus, we were slaves to sin. We were under sin's power. We had to do the sinful things in our life. But once we accepted Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer has that power over our lives. And now we have the ability to be victorious, to have victory over sin, to be able to obey God. Now, victory over sin is possible for us, but it only will happen if we actually put and rely on the right thing. And that's the key. The key to victory is what is it we're obeying? What is it we're relying upon to gain that victory? Well, in chapter 7, Paul told us what we shouldn't rely upon. If you want to be victorious in your Christian life, if you want to be victorious over sin, if you want to obey God, there are two things that he said in chapter 7, don't rely upon. They don't work. The first thing is ourselves, our own strength, our own power. If you're relying upon you and your strength and power to gain victory over the sin in your life, to obey God, it doesn't work. Why? Because we don't have the strength and power in and of ourselves and our flesh in order to do that. And Paul shares his own struggle and his own life of how he tried over and over to be victorious and obey the law in his own strength, and he failed again and again and again. The other thing that Paul says we shouldn't rely upon in order to be victorious in the Christian life is the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. It's God's perfect standard. Paul says it's holy, it's just, it's good. The only difficulty that the law has is that it doesn't give us the power to keep it. It's just a standard. Here's God's perfect standard, but I can't give you anything to keep that standard. I can't give you any strength. I can't give you any power. So if we're looking to and relying upon the law to enable us to keep it, we're looking to the wrong place because the law doesn't have any power. It is just the standard in which God's perfect standard is displayed to us. And so, all right, if 
Our own strength doesn't work. The law doesn't work. Well, what is it that we should rely upon? What will bring victory in our life? What will enable us to overcome our sin and obey God? Well, the answer to that question is the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, Paul is going to help us understand that reliance upon the Holy Spirit is the only way to gain victory in the Christian life, to overcome your sin, to obey God. Chapter 8 is wonderful, it's practical, it reveals so many things to us about how to have a victorious Christian life, and I'm very excited to go through this chapter with you because I think it brings out uh, some amazing truths that if we apply them, it'll drastically change our life. Romans chapter 8 by many Christians is regarded as the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. It's described as the mountain peak of Scripture, the chapter of chapters. Phil Spiner said this about Romans chapter 8. If Holy Scripture was a ring, then the epistle to the Romans would be its precious stone, and chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. So many commentators agree that Romans is the most profound book in Scripture, and chapter 8 is the most profound chapter in all of Romans. Now, another reason that Romans chapter 8 is so great is because it's really the Holy Spirit chapter. If you remember chapter 7, Paul talked about I, 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 me, in my own strength, I'm going to try to accomplish these things, and I fail, and I fail, and I fail. Now in Romans chapter 8, we see the Holy Spirit mentioned 19 times, more times than any other chapter in the entire Bible. This chapter is very much a focus on the Holy Spirit because how are we sanctified? Through reliance upon the Holy Spirit. He's the one that will give us the victory over sin in our life. Another reason Romans chapter 8 is so wonderful is because it's a chapter full of comfort. It's a chapter full of assurance. It starts by sharing with us that there's no condemnation. In the middle, it tells us there's no defeat. And at the end, it tells us there's no separation. And these three truths are so wonderful if you grasp them and hold on to them and realize what the Lord has done for you to make those things possible. So since there's so much in this chapter, we're going to go through it slowly. I don't want to try to get into all of it this morning. We're just going to cover the first 11 verses this morning. The next couple of weeks, we'll break it down, and hopefully we'll learn a lot of things that we can apply to our life. In these 11 verses, Paul's going to share with us four vital truths. The first truth that he's going to reveal to us is one of the best in the whole Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, we could really spend the whole morning just on this one verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you should put a period after Christ Jesus because the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, actually does not belong in this verse. For those of you who do not have a King James or New King James Version, your Bible won't have this in here uh, because it's more accurately translated with that. The phrase is not in verse 1 in the earliest manuscripts of Romans. Uh, it does not agree with the flow of Paul's context here. Now, we do have the exact same wording in verse 4, which says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to 
the Spirit. And in the original manuscripts in verse 4, that phrase is there. But in verse 1, it is not there. Now understand that you know in the ancient times, manuscripts were copied by scribes by hand. And so there's two possibilities as to why this then was added to verse 1 uh, in the scribe's manuscript. The first possibility is that the scribe just made a mistake and he saw what was there in verse 4 and he accidentally copied it into verse 1 word for word. The second thought is that the scribe uh, thought that because it was in verse 4 that Paul was implying this thing in verse 1, and to kind of help Paul get his point across, he takes what's in verse 4, he adds it to verse 1 because he feels like it was supposed to be there, but he shouldn't have. Charles Spurgeon says this about the added phrase in verse 1, the most learned man assure us that it is no part of the original text. I cannot just now go into the reasons for this conclusion, but they are very good and solid. The oldest copies are without it, the versions do not sustain it, and the fathers who quoted abundance of scriptures do not quote this sentence. So the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, does not belong in verse 1. And it's actually really important that we understand that, because verse 1 is so much more significant without this phrase. You see, Paul specifies who is not going to receive God's condemnation. It is those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is not basing his declaration of no condemnation upon our conduct. It's not whether we walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. That is not what the no condemnation is based upon. It's based upon our position, not our conduct, our position. Our position in Christ is why we have no condemnation, not the conduct that we ultimately display. And this is something that is very important. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. There's no qualifying statement. If you're in Christ, you won't be condemned. And if you have accepted that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead, the Bible says you are in Christ, and therefore there is no condemnation for you. Now to understand what this verse is saying, we need to understand what the word condemnation means. The Greek word here that is translated condemnation means a damnatory sentence it's when a judge passes judgment on us because we are guilty of sin. Now, as we clearly saw in our section on sin, every single one of us is guilty of sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve the condemnation, the judgment of God in our life. But as we looked at chapter 5, we noted that there's a position that we had, that we were in Adam. And because we were in Adam, we were born with a sinful nature. And because of that sin, the ultimate consequence was the condemnation, the judgment of God upon our life. That's what Romans 5, 18 clearly told us. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. This is speaking of Adam and the fact that we were in Adam and because of Adam's sin in the garden and our sin nature that we have and the sin that we commit, there is condemnation that now comes to our life that we should be judged by God because of our sin. So verse 18 starts with this bad news that because we're connected to Adam, we are in Adam and we are sinful, we should be condemned. But then verse 18 goes on to say some good news. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, 
resulting in justification of life. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he took the condemnation that we deserve. He took the judgment on himself so that we wouldn't have to. And when we accept Christ, we get placed in Christ. So our position, our standing changes. We go from being in Adam, in sin, to being in Christ, in his sinless righteousness. Now, because our position changes, because we're now in Christ, we've been saved from the condemnation that we deserve. We've been saved from God's judgment. Since Christ was condemned for us on the cross, our punishment was paid for, so now we're free. We're free from having to pay that ourselves. We're not going to receive a damnatory sentence or a pronouncement of judgment from God. Since we are in Christ, our verdict in God's court has changed. You know, this was the sad reality in Romans chapter 3 when we looked at the sin chapter and we ended with the verdict is all of humanity are guilty. We're all sinful. We all deserve God's condemnation. And once we accept Christ, there is a change in the verdict. The change isn't that you're innocent. You're still guilty. We're all still guilty. We're still guilty sinners. The difference is that God now looks at his son and says, I put the condemnation on him, and so I do not have to put it on you. You're still a guilty sinner, but your sin's been dealt with. You're still a guilty sinner that deserves judgment, but I have judged my son, so I don't have to judge you. And so now the verdict is no condemnation for you because you have accepted what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. Your debt has been paid in full so that you don't have to. Notice the Bible doesn't say less condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, a lot of believers think our standing in Jesus has just improved. You know, when you accept Jesus, it improves your standing. Now, instead of receiving the full condemnation of God, we just receive less condemnation. But our standing in Jesus didn't just get improved, it was completely transformed. We went from complete condemnation to no condemnation whatsoever. You know, this is one of the most important truths in the Bible that we have to not just get intellectually, but we need to let it really sink into our hearts and be lived out in our life. We are not condemned if you've accepted Christ. You will not be condemned. You cannot be condemned because you are in Christ. Ray Pritchard says this about no condemnation. Do you know what this means? You can struggle, but you're not condemned. You can fall, but you're not condemned. You can trip, but you're not condemned. You can stray off the path, but you're not condemned because God has said he will not condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus saved you, he didn't say he would take away all your problems. No, but he did say this, in your problems, there is no condemnation. In your struggles, there is no condemnation. In your failure, there is no condemnation. In your going astray, there is no condemnation. If you have accepted Jesus Christ into your life, understand this wonderful truth. There is no condemnation for you. God is not going to give you a damnatory sentence and judge you for your sin, because Jesus did that for you. He took that on himself so that you and I wouldn't have to. You know, I miss this truth for a lot of my Christian life. 
I would sin and I would feel this great uh, feeling of condemnation. And I always felt it was God condemning me and that God was just sitting on his throne, just waiting for the moment that he could cast me into hell for the sin that I just committed. And I just you know, felt that there was this constant condemnation from God on my life. But then God revealed to me this wonderful truth. There's no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus took it. He took it on your behalf, and now you don't have to worry about that anymore. You see, when a believer is in Jesus, God doesn't condemn, but he does convict. He does correct. And so if you've sinned and you feel a conviction, they think, oh, what I have just did is wrong. Well, that's God, because the Holy Spirit, one of his jobs is to convict the world of sin. And so there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. If, if I, I feel, yes, this is wrong, that is the work of God. If I feel like, oh, God is going to cast his judgment upon me because of it, no. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you've accepted him, you're not going to get the judgment of God. You're not going to get what you deserve. Jesus took what you deserve. If you're convicted and think it's wrong, yes, that's the work of God. Why? Because he wants you to change. He wants to correct you. He wants to help you. You know what? There's also natural consequences to our sin. So if you feel like, man, I've got some natural consequences to my sin, well, that's something that God allows. If you go out and, you know, you take a bunch of drugs, there's a natural consequence. That's going to mess up your body. It's probably going to shorten your lifespan. There's a natural consequence to that behavior. And God's not saying, well, just because you, you know, ask for forgiveness, great, I forgive you for that, but it doesn't change the natural consequences. You go out and sleep with a bunch of people, God will forgive you, but you still might get a sexually transmitted disease. You know, you go out and steal a car, God will forgive you, but you're still probably going to prison. There's natural consequences that God doesn't save us from in this life. We don't have the consequence ultimately of his judgment in hell. And so there's conviction and there's consequence. And so God convicts us because he wants to keep us from doing the sin that brings the consequences that are so damaging in our life. Now, I'm sure that you have felt condemnation when you sin. I feel it. So where is that coming from? If it's not coming from God, then then who is trying to get us to feel condemned for what we do? Well, the greatest source of our condemnation is from Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan loves to accuse the brethren, speaking of those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's one of his favorite pastimes. He likes to bring an accusation against us. Look at what you've did. Look at how horrible you are. You deserve the judgment of God. And when he does that, we so often feel condemned. But something that we need to understand is that Satan doesn't have the power and he doesn't have the role to condemn you. Actually, Satan is condemned, far worse than any of us. The the future judgment that is coming upon him will be worse than anyone in all of humanity. You see, condemnation is a damnatory sentence, and it's when a judge passes judgment on us because of our sin. Satan is not our judge. There is one judge that's going to judge every single person, and that is Jesus Christ. We are going to stand before Jesus. He is the judge of all. And so he is the only one who has the power and the role to condemn people. So Satan, all he's doing is just pointing out the fact that you're a sinner and that you deserve it. And those are both true. You are a sinner and you do deserve God's judgment. But when he tells you that, remember the truth that you're not going to receive it because Jesus received it on your behalf. Yeah, that's true. I am a sinner, Satan. Yes, that's true. I deserve God's judgment. But you know what? Jesus died for that. He sacrificed himself for that. And I'm not going to receive that because of it. And so don't let 
his lies and don't let his accusations bring you to a place where you think, oh yes, God's now going to pour his judgment on me. No, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Donald Barnhouse said this about no condemnation. A soul that comes to the full realization that he ought to be in hell, but that in reality the Lord Jesus took his hell, and that there is therefore now, 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 no condemnation for him because he is in Christ Jesus is likely to be quite moved by the truth. If the members of the human race are permitted to yell because their team won a football game, because their candidate won an election, because they have won $50 at a horse race, because their drilling has produced a gusher, let us shout for joy because we are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for us now. I love the fact that Donald Barnhouse continues to emphasize this now aspect, that this is ours right now. This is your status. You know, so often people on social media, they want to update your status. Well, update your status to this. There is now no condemnation for you if you have accepted Christ. That is your status right now, and it's a wonderful status to have. Jesus made it very clear in John 5, 24, when he said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has been passed from death to life. Jesus confirms what Paul is saying here. When you place your faith in him, you shall not have the judgment of God that you deserve poured out upon you. This is one of the most important truths in the Bible something that we must let sink in, something that we must hold on to, something that we need to apply to our lives. And it's the first point that I want you to take note of this morning. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now in verses two through four, Paul reveals another wonderful thing, another wonderful thing that we have because we're in Christ, we've accepted Christ. And it's the second thing that I want you to take note of this morning, which is in verses two through four. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit." Before you and I accepted Jesus, we were under one law, and after we accept Jesus, we're ultimately under what Paul's saying, kind of a different law. And what he's not saying is that, you know, the law of God has two different laws. He's saying there is one way in which we try to accomplish it, and now we have a new way in which we actually can accomplish it. Before we accepted Christ, this is what chapter 7 was all about. We tried, and even after we accept Christ, to keep the law in our own strength and our own power. And all that brings is sin and death. We can't do it. We can't accomplish it. We have no power in ourselves. The law just reveals you're a sinner, and the law reveals the consequence of your sin is death. We, we can't do it in our own power and our own strength. But yet when we accept Jesus Christ, we are given a new law, the law of the spirit of life, which now enables us, empowers us to actually keep the law, which we never could before. And so we needed another law to free us, to enable us, to empower us to do what we were incapable of doing in our own strength, in our own 
power. It's like how the law of aerodynamics makes you free from the law of gravity. The law of gravity ultimately keeps a plane from flying. But when the plane reaches a certain speed, the law of aerodynamics takes over and frees the plane from the effect of the gravitational force. The plane ultimately was created to fly. But gravity, that law, keeps it from doing what it was created to do. But yet, the law of aerodynamics, it frees that plane from the law of gravity. It enables that plane to do what it was created to do, fly. In the same way, we have the law, and in our own flesh, in our own strength, in our own power, we can never keep it. But God says, hey, I've given you a new law, the law of the Spirit. The Spirit's going to indwell you and empower you to actually keep the law like you never could before, and it's freeing you and empowering you to do that. Now in verse 3, we're told what God did to make that possible. What did he have to do in order for us to have the wonderful law of the spirit of life? For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's something that we looked at last chapter. The law could not defeat sin. It just reveals, it detects it. Hey, you're sinning, but it doesn't give you any power to defeat it. It doesn't give you any power to get victory over it. So that's our problem. Okay, the law detects my sin, but I can't defeat it. I need someone else to defeat it on my behalf. And that is what Jesus Christ did. He was the one who came and lived that perfect sinless life, the one that you and I couldn't do. And then he sacrificed himself on the cross, ultimately to defeat sin, to do what none of us could do so that we now could have his spirit indwell us and have the law of the spirit of life so that now we have the ability, the power to actually be victorious over sin. That's why in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now here's a challenge for us. Yes, it's made possible. We now have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. There is the ability within us, if we've accepted Christ, to actually overcome sin, to actually obey God. But here's the dilemma. Who are we going to follow? Our flesh, which wants to sin, or our spirit, who wants to obey? Our flesh, who wants to do what God doesn't want, or our spirit, who wants to do what God does want? Which one are we going to walk in? That's the dilemma that we have. We have the power now in our spirit to do what's right, but so often we choose to follow the fleshly desires of our sin and we do what's wrong. And so Paul is bringing out those who walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those are the ones who are going to have the victory. If you're walking according to the spirit, that's when you actually overcome and obey what God has called us to. So the second thing I want you to take note of this morning is this. In Christ, we are given the law of the spirit of life, which frees us and empowers us to obey God. That's what gives you the power. It's not in yourself. In yourself, as we looked at last time, you have no power, no strength to do what God calls you to do. But the Holy Spirit can give you all the power and strength you need to accomplish that. Now, in verses 5 through 8, Paul's going to reveal that each of us have this battle, this battle between the spirit and the flesh. But he's going to share about this battle throughout this chapter. But here he's going to focus on really the main area in our life that this battle 
transpires, and that is in our mind. That's really the starting point. That's the most significant point. And so he's going to reveal kind of this contrast of our mind and this battle and what goes on. Notice what he tells us here in verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul starts off revealing to us that People who live according to the flesh, live according to sinful desires, set their mind on fleshly things. And those who live according to the Spirit, according to what God desires, they set their mind on spiritual things. What Paul is revealing to us is how you live is directly connected with what you set your mind on. And it shouldn't surprise us. You know, all of our actions, before we actually do them, we we make a decision in our mind. The the starting point is the mind. That is where we decide how we're going to act, how we're going to speak, what we're going to say. It's all starting here. And so Paul is saying, those who set their mind on sinful things, it shouldn't be a surprise that they actually live that way. Those who set their mind on spiritual things, it shouldn't be a surprise that they live that way. And so his challenge now bringing us to this reality of what are you going to set your mind on? Because what you set your mind on is definitely going to impact how you live. If your mind is focused, seeking, striving after the flesh, you're going to live after the flesh. If your mind is focused, seeking, and striving after the Spirit, you're going to walk after the Spirit. In verses 6 through 8, Paul gives us three contrasts of what happens if we follow our carnal mind versus our spiritual mind. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice this contrast. With the following of our flesh, Paul says there's three negative results. When we follow the Spirit, there's three positive results. You follow the flesh because your carnal mind is focused on fleshly things. It leads to death. It leads to enmity or uh, war with God, and it can't please God. So when we're following our flesh, it leads to really negative things in our own life. It leads to problems in our relationship with God, and ultimately, it won't please God. But on the other side, when you are following the Spirit, it leads to life, it leads to peace, and it does please God. So when we follow what the Spirit of God has in our life, it brings positive things. It brings positive things in our life personally, into our relationship with God, and also it actually pleases God. So if you're saying, I want to please God, well, if that's true, then the only way to do that is to set your mind on spiritual things and actually do spiritual things because the sinful fleshly things we do, they never please God. So every day we have this battle going on. I'm sure that we wish we didn't. I'm sure that it was, you know, I wish I could just only, you know, choose what was right and good and godly every day, but we're faced with this battle of, oh, but I do have my flesh, and I do have these desires to do what's sinful inside of me, and so in my mind, daily, I'm struggling with this battle of, am I going to glorify God, or am I going to glorify myself? Am I going to do things that are going to please God, or am I going to do things that are just going to please me 
in my flesh. You know, in every real area of our life, we kind of have this choice, and each day we have it. You know, for example, in our job, there are two different mindsets you could have when it comes to your job. A spiritual mindset is looking to see how you can glorify God in your job. A fleshly mindset is looking to see how can I glorify myself in this job. A carnal mindset would put your job and just say, you know what, it's just here to make me money to fulfill my flesh. That's the only reason I do it. That's the only reason I care about it. That's the only reason I go. If that's really your mindset and your job, then it's a fleshly mindset and it's not going to please God. There's not going to be much in that that's ever going to bring glory to God. A spiritual mindset would look at your job as God's chosen area for you to be a witness, for you to be an example of Jesus Christ, a place where you can glorify God by being faithful and willing to do the task that you've been given to the best of your ability, to see it as a means through which God has opened a door for you to provide for your needs, to provide for the needs of your family, to take what God has given you and use those resources ultimately for his glory. And if you see your job as that, and you focus on it with that mindset, then you're going to please God through it because you're viewing it with a spiritual mindset which is impacting the way in which you live. But in every area of life, we have that battle. And some days we might even go to work and we actually have the right mindset and we do well, and then another day we don't because it's a daily battle. It's that struggle each day of, you know, how am I going to live is dictated by the way in which I think. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we'll get there in the future, but Paul says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Because our minds are such a vital place for deciding what we're going to live by, we need to be very careful what we allow into our mind. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't act like this world. Don't follow this world. Instead, be transformed. Be completely different than the way in which this world lives and acts and speaks. And the way for this transformation to happen, Paul says, is we need a renewing of our mind. Notice that he brings it back to the mind. That is such a huge area. If you want a different change in the way in which you live, there needs to be a renewal in the way in which you think. Because if our thinking doesn't change, our action is not going to change. If there's not a work in the mind, then our lifestyle is just going to continue to be fleshly and sinful. And so we need to renew our mind by taking in godly things and removing or keeping out sinful things. It's a very practical process. You can't really actually take out what you've already put in, but you can renew it by kind of flushing those things out as you continue to bring in godly things. You continue to saturate your mind with God's word. And then from now on, you can say, you know what? I'm going to stop allowing that junk in my mind, and I'm going to flush my mind out by putting in godly things. And one of the best things you can put in your mind is God's word, to study it each day, to meditate upon it. There's some great verses that encourage us with what happens when that takes place. Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man cleanse his way? Maybe you've asked that, you know, how can I cleanse my life? You know, I've been involved in this sin and that sin, and I want to change. Well, notice what we're told by taking heed according to your word. The word of God and doing what it says, that's one of the best ways to see a big change. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, blessed is a man 
who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor seats in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. God's word is one of the best ways to transform our mind. And so if you're thinking, why is it I'm not having a transformed life and a transformed mind? How often are you in it? How often are you studying it? If you rarely open God's word and look into it and study it, you shouldn't be surprised that you're not actually being transformed by it because you actually have to allow it into your mind before it impacts the way in which you live. And so if you don't take time to study it, to read it, then that process isn't going to work. Another practical thing to do is be very careful what you allow in your mind. You know, we live in a day and age where we have so much at the tip of our fingers with our smartphones and with all sorts of social media and different things. There's so much that is wanting to get into our mind. There's so much out there that is hoping to influence the way in which we think. And so we are the ones who have to put those walls and those protective barriers and have to be careful what we allow in. Some of it's real obvious. There's certain TV shows and certain movies and certain scenes and certain you know, sites on the website that you could say, obviously, as a Christian, I should never go there. I should never watch that. Well, good. Well, let's get rid of those to start with. But there's other things that are just not healthy for us. And, you know, um, we just need to be careful. I mean, there, there are certain things that are okay, you know, as long as you're not just, you know, dwelling on them all day long. I mean, social media is not a bad thing, but if you're spending eight hours a day on it, it's a problem for you. You know, so, you know, you just need to realize, you know, we need to be careful with what we allow in and it's going to make a big impact in our life. So the third thing I want you to take note of is what you set your mind on will impact how you live. So set your mind on spiritual things, not carnal things. That's where it starts. Your mind is the start of what you're actually going to do. So if you want to see actions in your life change, start with what you actually allow into your mind. So we have this battle. All of us, I'm sure, have failed miserably in this battle. We want to do what the Spirit says sometimes, but instead we go and do what the flesh says, or maybe we just do want to do what the flesh says and we do it. But we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of sinning and following the sinful flesh in our life. And sometimes we ask the question, do I really have the power to do this? Can I really overcome these sinful desires? Or maybe there's one particular sin that's in your mind that you've continued to do over and over again, and you think... I thought I could overcome it, but I can't. Well, that's true. In yourself, you can't. But in the power of the Spirit, you can. And Paul encourages us in these last few verses with the kind of power that's available to us to actually win the battle, to be victorious over sin. And it's important to remember the power that's available to you and to me if we placed our faith in Jesus. He says this in verses 9 through 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know, earlier we noted that when we accept Jesus, we go from no longer being in Adam to now being in Christ. When you and I were in Adam, we were in the flesh. We walked in the flesh. We lived for the flesh. That was our whole purpose in life. But when we went to this new standing of in Christ, we were now in the spirit. Something that we never had in Adam because we didn't have the spirit of God dwelling in us. And so Paul's saying, there's this wonderful change. If you truly have accepted Christ, you now have the Spirit of God, and now because of that, you can walk in the Spirit. You don't have to continue to walk in the flesh like you used to. Before Christ, that's all you have, because you have no spiritual power. But now that we've accepted Christ, we have the ability to walk in the Spirit because the Spirit of God dwells in us. But notice what Paul says in verses 10 and 11, because sometimes you think, well, yeah, the Spirit of God dwells in me, but still... Does he give me the power to overcome my flesh? My flesh is really strong. I've given into it a lot. Well, notice the power that Paul associates the Holy Spirit to. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Something we need to understand is the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that dwells in us. That's what you have accessible to you. That's what I have accessible to me. And so if we think, oh, I can't overcome this sin. No, that's not true. You can. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is enough power to overcome any fleshly temptation or desire that you have. God can give you what you need to overcome the sin in your life. 1 Peter 1.3, a great verse, says this, And his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. What this verse is telling us is that God has given us everything we need to live a Christian life, to live a life where we're victorious over sin, where we can obey him. Anything we need to do to live godly, God's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So often our excuse is, oh, I just don't have what I need to resist this temptation. I just don't have what I need to obey God in this area. But that's not true. If you've accepted Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have everything you need to be victorious. The reason that you're failing, the reason that you're sinning, the reason that you're giving into these temptations has nothing to do with the fact that you don't have what you need. It has all to do with the fact that you're not relying upon what you've been given. That's what the difference between chapter 7 and 8 is all about. You have what you need. The problem is you and I so often depend on our own strength and own power to overcome sin, and we fail, and we think, wow, I just don't have what I need. No, we have it. We're just not relying upon it. We're not recognizing the power that's available, putting our trust in it, reliance upon it, and utilizing it to overcome our sin and to actually be obedient to the Lord. So the fourth thing I want you to take note of this morning is the Holy Spirit gives us all the strength and power we need to live a godly life. You know, sometimes we believe that intellectually, but not experientially. Oh yeah, the Holy Spirit gives me all the power I need, but but I don't believe it in life because I'm not depending upon it. If you're not depending upon that power, it shows that you don't really get it or believe it. 
So don't just let this be something that's an intellectual understanding. Let it something be something that actually is lived out, that you depend upon, that you realize, yes, that spirit that dwells in me, that raised Jesus from the dead, can enable me to overcome these issues. It can enable me to change and be a godly man and a godly woman, a godly husband or a godly wife, a godly parent. You know, this is possible because the Spirit of God dwells in us and gives us all we need to live a godly life. So in these first 11 verses, there's some wonderful truths, not just to comprehend intellectually, but to put into practice. The first being there is no condemnation, none whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has freed us from trying to obey the law in our own strength and has given us the strength to obey it. What you set your mind on will impact how you live. So set your mind on spiritual things, not carnal things. And the Holy Spirit gives us all the strength and power we need to live a godly 